So we're going to look in, in this letter in Revelation chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you want to turn them open to that, that would be good. I wonder um, if any of you can think of uh, an experience or a situation or a circumstance where you remember the thrill of doing something for the first time and it got you really excited. Um, I was trying to think of one for me. Um, I had to think long and hard, of course, apart from meeting my wife, of course. Um, uh, but but one, of, one of them, I can't remember the exact date, but it was August 1987. And I, and I was a naive 21-year-old. I was still a, a medical student. And I was going on my elective to India. Um, and I was traveling alone. And I had never flown before. So this was my first time flying age 21, how sad is that? But I remember it very clearly because I got dropped off at Heathrow Airport and I'd never even been in an airport before. So your first experience on your own, going to India, and I'd arrived at Heathrow Airport. And of course, this is the, you've got to remember this is in the days before internet and mobile phones, so you couldn't look up and check out what you did. And So I just went into this, and I, I got into this airport and it was just absolutely full of people and I wandered around and eventually, uh, somehow I managed to get my way through where you were meant to be and so forth. I remember that somebody came up to do a survey on me as well and they, I thought, oh, I'll do a survey. And they said, and, and, and what class are you traveling? I said, what, what do you mean, what class are you traveling? Well, are you traveling first class, business class or economy class? Well, it must be first class. So, so yeah, first class, yeah. So anyway, I got on the plane, I remember, eventually, and I was on the right plane and it was definitely going to India. Um, and I got buckled in and I listened intently to the air stewardess and then we started taxiing and I thought, oh, this is great, this is great. Then you get to the end of the runway and of course they give you that big thrust and suddenly you're thrown back and you're saying, hang on a minute. And I don't know, aircraft 30 odd years ago weren't quite as good as they are today and this thing was just vibrating like this and I'm sitting next to the window. I think, this is not right. Something's, this, this thing's going to fall apart. And I'm looking around panicking, panicking. And everyone else is sitting there reading their books and all this sort of stuff. And of course, we, got, we did manage to take off and, and I got there. And, and I can remember the, the different emotions and that, the excitement. The heart was pumping, the, the, the adrenaline was pumping. Um, there was a bit of fear. There was a bit of unknown as well. But, but all of those mixture of emotions was very raw. And even as I'm speaking about it today, I can still, still have a wee sense of that, what I felt. Now, that was... 30-odd years ago. Since then, I'm glad to say I've flown again. And I've flown quite a few times since then, and I've been to lots of different airports. And I have to be honest with you and say, I've never had that thrill or that experience again when I've gone to an airport or got on a plane again. It's all a bit mundane. And in fact, to be honest, going to an airport is a bit of a drag because there's a lot of hanging around. And then you get through, you get on the plane, and you're not terribly excited about this plane taking off. Um, you're more excited about where you're actually going, so it's really a means to an end. So I've never really experienced that same thrill and that same buzz as I got that first time. And maybe you can think of situations like that and circumstances in your life. But maybe that's also true of us in our Christian faith. Maybe when we experience God for the first time and we realize what he's done for us, we're so excited and we feel that real buzz, um, it, it makes such a difference to us. And yet, as time goes by, there's a familiarity with it. 
and, and suddenly we're doing the same things, but it doesn't really mean the same, and we don't get the same buzz, and we don't get the same excitement out of God and out of being a Christian as we did before. And I wonder whether that does describe our Christian experience. And that's, I think, why this letter is written to the church in Ephesus, for this very reason. Just to put it in context, first of all, John, uh, the writer of the book of Revelation, um, if you read in chapter 1, has just written the most amazing vision that he's had of the Christ as revealed by God, this, this picture of, of, of power and majesty and, and authority. And the message of Revelation is written specifically for these seven churches in Asia Minor. We see that in verse 4 of chapter 1, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. So this letter, is a, the whole book is addressed to them. Um, but it's also in a, a much wider sense meant for the whole church universal through all time. And John's instructed to write a letter to each, church, each of these seven churches in Asia individually. Now these seven churches are real churches, like we are a real church. They're real bodies of people, people who are meeting. And so John is writing to this group of believers in, in Ephesus. But the, the key thing about these seven churches is that the message for these seven churches is a message that's relevant for us today because these churches represent the different types of churches that have existed down through the ages. Churches that have existed, churches that have, have things that are good about them, but also things that are not so good about them. And so we can learn from them um, what it is that God is wanting to say to us. So the purpose in writing for the, to these churches is not just for them individually at that particular time, but it's for us today as well. And the contents of the first letter to the church in Ephesus sets a pattern of the, 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 how the, all, all the other letters are written as well because there's a, there is a pattern to these letters. And we're going to go through it in that pattern today. And, and to make it simple for you, I've, I've tried to be clever. Um, doesn't always work, but anyway. Um, and, uh, and, and there's, there's, six, there's six things about each letter that we can break down and we're, we're going to break down today. Um, and they all begin with the letter C. So the first one is the correspondent is identified and not only identified, but something of their character is told to us. So the correspondent or the author, if you like, of the letter. Then the church and the location is named. And then the writer comes to offer a commendation. He comes to offer something that is good and positive about this church. But he also then comes with a condemnation. Something that's not so good. Something um, that, that tells them that things are not right in the church. But he then comes, fifthly, with a command, how to sort the problem. And finally, with a counsel, which is how to obey the command. And that's what we're going to look at with this church in Ephesus. So firstly, we're going to look at the correspondent or the author of the letter. And that, and that, that is identified very clearly in verse 1. The words of him who holds seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And immediately... If you read chapter 1, you'll be taken back to chapter 1. In verse 12, it says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long rope and with a golden sash around his chest. So again, immediately we see the golden lampstands in chapter 1 and one in their midst, and this is the one who's writing this letter. But not only that, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Verse 16 of chapter 1. It says, in his right hand he held seven stars. 
So immediately the, the, the author of this letter is identified as God himself. And what can we learn about him? Well, the stars are the, are the leaders of the church. And it says he holds the stars in his hand. What does that mean? Well, generally, if you hold something in your hand, then you have authority over it. That's not always the case for me. Ideally, if, if I'm playing golf and I use my golf club, usually I like to strike the ball and it's supposed to go that way. Now, that doesn't always work. Uh, so that, that metaphor doesn't quite work for me always. But generally, if you hold something in your hand, you're in control of it. You know what you want to do with it. If you've got a pen, if you've got something, you control it. And that's, uh, so it's speaking of authority. So it speaks of the authority that God has over these church leaders that are held in his hand. But it also speaks of protection as well. That God is one who's protecting. I hold you in my hand. There's an image there of God protecting us. So this is one who has authority, one who has protection over us. What about the one who walks among the lampstands? The lampstands are the churches themselves. And you notice the thing there is that God is not a distant God. He's in their midst. And not only is he in their midst, but he's active, he's walking. The, the, the verb is in the present tense, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So God is in their midst. He's moving around in their midst. He's working in their midst. So this is the one who has authority. And this is the one who is in their midst, who is among them. But not only that, we also see in verse 2, the first two words says, I know. God is omniscient. God knows all things. Nothing is hidden from his gaze. And so the writer um, is identified as God himself, as God who has power and authority, as God who is in their midst, and as God who knows everything about them. And so therefore, what he has to say to us should be listened to because it comes from full knowledge but it comes with absolute power and authority as well. So that's the, the, the one who's, who's written the letter in a sense. Who's the letter to? It says in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. The angel again was a, the, a, the, the pastor or the elder of the church. And Ephesus itself was a key city. It was probably the most important city in Asia Minor. Um, and Ephesus, the church in Ephesus was the first church that founded all the other churches, the, the other six churches that are written to later uh, in Revelation. Um, there was a Roman governor who resided in Ephesus, um, but there was no need to have any Roman troops stationed there because it was a self-governing place. It was a primary harbor, so it was a busy center for trade. And not only that, but the four major routes of the Roman Empire in Asia all passed through Ephesus as well. So it was, it was a very important place, but it was probably most famous as the center of worship of the Roman goddess Diana. And her temple um, was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Um, and it was an important source of income for the city as well. But not only that, the city and, and particularly around about the temple was a haven for all sorts of people. Um, some good, some not so good. So criminals, prostitutes, bankers, that priests, dancers, hysterical worshippers, all of these sorts of people would gather around about the temple. And so it was into this city that the church of Ephesus was born. And it was, it was born when Priscilla and Aquila first um, went to Ephesus and then Apollos helped them um, establish the church. And Paul visited the church briefly on his second missionary journey, but really the real work was done on his third missionary journey 
And Paul went and he ministered in the church for three years and he built up the church. And then following on from Paul, there were other pastors who, who helped the church and encouraged the church, including Timothy and Onesiphorus and Tychicus. And then John himself, the, the writer in Revelation, um, served the church in Ephesus as well. And it's thought that he probably, um, when he was exiled to Patmos, he was exiled from Ephesus. So it was a church that had a rich heritage. It was a church that had been established by the Apostle Paul and others. Um, and it was a church that was being really effective or was being effective in, in impacting its community. If you look in Acts chapter 19, um, the gospel was reaching out. There was lots of people who practiced magic arts and so forth in, in Ephesus. And it says in verse 19, uh, chapter 19, sorry, verse 18, also many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So this was having a real economic impact. The gospel was having an economic impact on Ephesus. 50,000 pieces of silver was the value of these books that were burned. 50,000 pieces of silver was equivalent to 50,000 days wages. A piece of silver was a day's wage. Can you imagine that, the impact? And obviously those who were still seeking to get their income from this um, sort of practice weren't very happy. And if you read on in chapter 19, there was a riot in Ephesus. Um, so this, this wasn't an easy place for the church. It was having a real impact on the community, but it wasn't a, an easy place. It was a difficult and hostile environment for the Christians in Ephesus. And this letter is written to them almost four decades later. So Paul um, has gone. Many of the first generation believers are gone as well. And so this current letter is written to the church, as I say, about four decades after um, those initial um, successes in the church. So that's the church. What about the commendation? Well, God comes to this church and he praises this church. He brings forth some glorious commendations about this church. Remember, he says, I know, in verse 2, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and find them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. And verse 6, he says, yet... This you have, you hate the Nicolaitans, the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So God comes to commend this church and he does so in three ways. First of all, he commends them for their works or their deeds. This is a busy and an active church. I know your works, he says, or deeds as, as some translations put it. These are the things they're actually doing, their actions, their activities, their accomplishments. And that they're, that they're doing day by day, week by week. But not only that, he says, I know your toil. And toil here is a word that's used to describe labor. But labor that goes to the point of exhaustion or weakness. A willingness to go that extra mile. A willingness to really put yourselves into that position where you're, you're, you're exhausted and weary but willing to carry on. And your patient endurance. 
And he says later, I know you're enduring patiently in verse 3 and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. And endurance means to abide. It's slightly different from toil because endurance is abiding under persecution, under pain, under threat. It's staying power, if you like. And, and the, the words endurance expresses the extent of the labor and toil expresses the degree of their labor for God. So God sees this. God knows us. He sees the activities that are going on in this church and he praises them for that. But not only that, secondly, he praises them for their doctrinal purity. You cannot bear those who are evil. This was a church where sin wasn't tolerated. They upheld the truth of the gospel and they needed to remove any false teaching from their midst. To be doctrinally sound was very important to them, was held in high esteem. And so again, they were praised by God for that. But not only that, they were also praised thirdly for their spiritual discernment. Again, we see that in, in verse 2. But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and find them to be false. And again in verse 6, the, the reference to the Nicolaitans. So they were willing to test what they were hearing from people who claimed to be apostles, who claimed to be leaders. They were willing to test them and see if what they said was really true. And if not, to deal with them. And their hatred for the Nicolaitans was in contrast to the church in Pergamum that we read of later in chapter 2. If you read in chapter 2, verse 15, it says, this is to the church in Pergamon. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, it's a bit not known an awful lot about the Nicolaitans, but um, they were thought to have been followers of Nicholas, who was one of the first deacons identified in Acts chapter 6. Now, whether, whether he was a, somebody who rebelled against or, or whether his teachings were just misrepresented, we're not sure. But the Nicolaitans basically adopted the same, um, if you'll see in the letter to Pergamum, it's, it's, it's put in the same bracket as the, the teachings of Balaam in the Old Testament to Israel. He says, verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might practice, they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Whatever the teaching of the Nicolaitans was, it was wrong, it was false, it was evil. And the church here in Ephesus hated this, and God commended them for that. And so we have here a church that drew so much praise from God. We have here a church that was busy and an active church. We have a church that was serving in a dark and a difficult place, but it was holding a high moral and doctrinal stance. A church that was willing to exhibit spiritual discernment and a willingness to practice spiritual discipline to maintain the integrity of their witness. And as we look at that church, surely we say, this is a church that we should aspire to. This is a church uh, that is going in the right direction with God. But remember, the author of the, this letter is the one who knows all things, the one who says, I know, who sees all things, who can scratch beneath the surface. And in so doing, he says that there's a big problem here. There's a major flaw that needs to be addressed urgently. And so con comes the condemnation that we see in verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. If you go into Ephesians um, and chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, 
For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. He's talking about their love. Chapter 3, verse 17, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Love was something that characterized the believers in Ephesians. And that love that was so characteristic in the life of the church was beginning to fade. 40 40 long years had passed. 40 years of hard toil and labor. 40 years of enduring under persecution. Of maintaining that doctrinal purity. And of rooting out false teachers. And yes, they were still doing all the right things. But it was becoming mechanical and dutiful. Their motivation, their service, and their passion for Christ was becoming lost. So that they were no longer able to say with Paul as he did in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14, for, the, for Christ's love compels us. That was always Paul's driving force. That was always his motivation. Christ's love. The love of Christ. But this church in Ephesians had lost that as its driving force. And they had sunk to the place where carrying out their Christian responsibilities with a diminishing love for the Lord and the loss of that vital relationship, that love relationship with Jesus was opening the door to spiritual apathy and indifference. And despite the outwardly robust appearance of that church, a deadly spiritual cancer was growing in the heart of the church that needed to be addressed urgently. And the key thing here as well, if you read that verse, is but have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first, abandoned, forsaken, you have left. It's it's slightly different from lost. Sometimes you lose something because it's taken from you. But when you forsake something, it gives you that sense of you're moving away from a position that you once held. And that's what the church is doing here. They once held that position where love was the key factor, where love was the motivator. But they've moved away from that now and service for the Lord was more important than passion and devotion for him. And so God comes to this church. He tells them what the problem is. But God then brings a command to them. God brings a remedy for their situation, this precarious situation that they find themselves in. And God's remedy is threefold, very simple. Remember, repent, return. In verse 5, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. They're told to remember from where they've fallen. The writer is saying, look back and remember what it was like when you first started out. Forgetfulness is often the initial step on spiritual decline. And God wanted them to look back to that initial point where they fell in love with him, where their service was because, came out of a love for him. And he says, remember what it felt like. I want you to feel that again. I want you to know what it felt like. Remember that. Secondly, he calls them to repent. And we all know what the word repent means. It means to confess our sins, to turn away, to turn around, to go in a different direction, a deliberate act of turning away from a, this direction and going in this direction, to repent of the fact that we're drifting away from God and we're drifting away from his love and turn around and move back towards that place again. 
So he calls them to repent and confess their sins. And finally, he wants them to repeat or return to the original works they did before. He's not saying, I want you to do more works. I see your works and I'm praising you for them. I want you to do more works. He's saying the works I want you to do are the works that come from that motivation of love. I don't want you just to remember what it was like then, but I want you to be in that experience now and serving God in that way now. So that the works that you're doing now are because you love me, because that's your driving force. And the warning is clear in the second part of that verse. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. God's judgment is going to come upon this church unless they do turn around. He will remove their lampstand. What does that mean? It means the church will die. The church will disappear. The blessing and power of God is removed. And despite what might seem an externally vibrant and healthy church, unless the spiritual cancer is dealt with, it will eat away at the heart of the church and eventually it will kill the church. Left love means lost light. Forsaken love means lost light. It means a light that is diminishing and a light that can go out. And if you go to Ephesus today, there's just a pile of rubble. There is no church. And so finally, we come to God's counsel. What is God's counsel? Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God is saying in the light of all this, I've praised you for the things that are good, but there's a problem here that you need to address and I've told you how to address it. God is saying you need to listen. You need to listen to what I'm saying. Open your ears to hear. There's a serious responsibility here to obey God's word. And the letter, this letter is written to the church, but you'll notice here that the response required is individual. He who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says. And the promise is to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the conqueror, to the overcomer, what does that mean? Well, John himself tells us in, in, his, in his letter in 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5 verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This isn't for spiritually elite people. This is for all those who believe in Jesus, who trust him. The promise of God is there. And what is the promise? That we will eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. And again, if you go right back to the beginning of the Bible, you'll remember Adam in the Garden of Eden and how he was banished because of sin. And the tree of life... It was no longer accessible. And God is saying, the tree of life, you can eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God in heaven. That's the blessing because of the second Adam, because of Jesus. So everyone who believes in Jesus, this promise holds true. So that's the counsel of God. So we have this letter here to the church in Ephesus. A letter that was written nearly 2,000 years ago to address a particular flaw in an otherwise busy and active church. And today there is no church in Ephesus. So is there any relevance for us today? Well, I would say we would be fools if we, if we answered anything other than yes to that question. Because just like the Ephesian church, we can be in danger of failing to see potential flaws in our midst. Deadly cancerous growths, 
in our church. We live in a busy age. Demands are high for our attention and our time, and the needs are great. And the demands for instant actions and instant answers have never been more obvious than they are today. And as a church, we can be active. As a church, we can be, have many ministries. We can be very involved in lots of things. And we can hold high esteem the word of God. We can seek to maintain that doctrinal purity that is so important. We want to remain fundamental to holding on to the truths. And yet the question that God asks us this morning and the challenge that God brings to us this morning as a church and as individuals is this. Have we forsaken our first love? That's the question that he brings to us this morning. And does all that we say and all that we do and all that we stem from, does it stem from our passion and our love for God? And, and let's, let's be completely honest here because it's easy for us not to be. It's easy for us to hide behind the masks that we can kid ourselves, we can kid others, we can kid our families and our friends and our brothers and sisters. But this morning we're sitting here under what I would call the omniscient microscope of God. Because God knows our hearts. God sees into our very beings. He sees everything that other people don't see. And we can't escape from that. And God says to us this morning, I know. I know. I know. Nothing is hidden from his gaze. I know what you're like. I know what's driving you. I know where you're at. And he's saying to us this morning, I know how much you love me. Maybe much of what we say and much of what we do has become duty and mechanical. Maybe we do things because we see a need and we think nobody else is doing it, so I better do it. Maybe we hold to that moral and doctrinal purity, not out of a love for God, but out of a sense of pride and piety looking down on others and thinking we're better than them because we understand these things. We sit here this morning, not just at the start of a, another new year, but we sit at the start of a new decade. And so it's good for us to examine ourselves this morning in the light of God's word. And no doubt, as, as a church and as individuals, we're already thinking of what lies ahead. We always do at this time of year. We're contemplating things. We're maybe planning things. As a church, we're thinking about church building. We're thinking about areas of service and, and things that we can get involved in in the community. We're thinking about our, maybe our own commitment to the church and what we're involved in and maybe things we want to be involved in or things we want to withdraw from. We're thinking about holiday clubs. We're thinking about toddler groups. We're thinking about maybe personal things, maybe our work situations, maybe a change in work situation. Maybe our home situation is changing. Maybe relationships are changing. Family, we're maybe thinking about holidays and planning all of those things. All of these things fill our minds at the start of a new year. And God says this morning, what about me? What about your love for me? Does that passion and joy and excitement about God still fill your soul as you think about him as it used to? Remember, we put up on the screen in the kids' talk, the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your mind. What's the first word of the first commandment? Love. Love the Lord your God 
And not with some of your heart and some of your soul, but with all of it. And I often remember this, thinking back of Jesus, how he dealt with Peter after his resurrection and after Peter's denial of him. And remember, he took Peter aside and he said to him, Peter, do you love me? And, and Peter responded, yes, Lord, I love you. You know I love you. But Jesus wanted Peter's affirmation of his love for him before he would send him out to serve him. So he wasn't wanting Peter to do things. He wanted Peter to love him first and foremost. And Peter was getting irked because Jesus kept repeating it. Lord, you know I love you. It's almost like, why do you keep asking me? And maybe this morning, God's coming to us, and as he did to Peter and saying, do you love me? And we say, yeah, of course I love you. But he's coming again and saying, do you love me? And why is he repeating that question? Because he wants to be sure that you love him, first and foremost, before he wants you to serve him. And how do we know if we've forsaken our first love? Well, I think if you really love someone, they'll fill your thoughts and your time. You'll be excited to be in their presence. You'll be willing to make sacrifices so you can spend time with them. You'll do all that you can to get every opportunity to spend time with them, to talk with them, to share with them, to enjoy their company and share experiences with them. And you'd be even willing to sacrifice your own happiness to bring them joy. So God calls us to remember. William reminded us last week that Jesus has come and the work of salvation is complete. It's finished. He's done it all. There's nothing that we can do will make God love us more than he does already. There's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. Nothing but the grace of Jesus, grace and love of Jesus. But when we remember that moment when the, that truth first dawned on our souls, do you remember how it felt? The excitement of knowing that God loved you, not because of who you are, but despite who you are. And you experience the power of God in your lives, of his presence, of his forgiveness, was there not a thrill and an excitement and a real buzz? Do you still experience that? Or is that just a faded memory? God calls us to repent. To contemplate what's standing in the way of us loving God as we did at first. Are we just too busy and too stressed? Is life just too much? Is there, are we doing too many things even in church or families or work or whatever? Are there ambitions and our goals that are driving us? Perhaps hobbies or other interests that have diminished and faded our love for God. God says, repent and confess these things before me and turn from these things. And then God calls us to return, to go back to how it all started, to allow yourself to be filled again with the amazement and wonder of your salvation. How God could take a wretched sinner like you and like me and call us his children. How we can stand before him clothed in the righteousness of Jesus and to allow the reality of that wonderful truth to restore your love for God. 
Allow that love for God to dominate your life so that all that you do and all that you are and desire stems from that alone. To seek God, to spend time with him, to make time for him, to desire to be in his presence, both individually and corporately, likewise in prayer. All of these things will help us to restore that love for God. It wouldn't be right for me to to stand here this morning and not quote from A.W. Tozer. So I'm going to. He says, passion can be defined in two ways. First, there is passion of the heart and then there is the passion of the mind. Often these two are confused and used interchangeably. The difference is the passion of the mind is influenced by outside influences, whereas the passion of the heart delves deep into the deep things of God. This letter to the Ephesians encourages us to return to our first love, to love God first and foremost. And if we do, we have the promise of blessing of God. But if not, our light will fade. We live in difficult times and it's easy to look around in despair. And particularly as we stand on the cusp of a a new decade, we look at the world, we look at the darkness, we look at the chaos around about us. And we can despair or we can turn to God and we can love him with all our hearts and with all our souls and all our mind and know that in so doing, we are in the hands of almighty God who knows all things. May that truly be our experience this morning as we go from this place. Let's just bow our heads together in prayer.